FM, The Way. Current events. Personal values. Political and social issues. Technology. Wars and tensions. Join us for the next hour to discuss and learn how the things happening in our world today point to God's prophetic word as signs of the times. Welcome in to a special edition of Signs of the Times. I'm your host, Greg Hilt, and thanks for joining us. Last week, and now this week, as Pastor Mark is wrapping up his time in Israel, we're wrapping up our topical look through the Truth Series. Last week, we examined the Bible and other things that claim to have equal footing with the authenticity and sovereignty the Bible comes with. So, if you missed Pastor Mark identifying the true scriptures, please go back to last week's show and give it a listen. Now, this week, we're examining the claims and beliefs held by many that there is more than one Jesus. Now, that might sound funny to you, and Pastor Mark will say as much, but it's true. Ask the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, a New Ager, or random people on the street. They've all got their version. But can all of them be true? Let's find out. Go ahead and grab your Bible and follow along with Pastor Mark as he identifies the true Jesus on this special edition of Signs of the Times. All right, all right. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is so great to see you and your smiling faces. It's wonderful to have you this morning with us. If you're visiting, we're glad to have you with us. And for those of you who already know, uh, we are in between books and doing a series on theology and doctrine, just three Sundays. Last Sunday, we looked at the true scriptures. Uh, this week, we'll be looking at the true Jesus, and then we'll finish up next week before we uh, uh, start a new book or whatever. So again, if you would, again, open your Bibles, although it says John 1.1, 1, 1, open them to begin with to Revelation chapter 1. And while you guys are finding your way there to Revelation, let's pray and ask God to really pour out his spirit and minister to his flock today. Lord, how you love your sheep. As you look down from heaven and see your beautiful flock this morning, God, your desire is to feed them. Your desire is to love them. Your desire is to uh, let them know you in ways they've never known you, Lord. So here we are, your flock. We want to know you, Lord, in new ways. And I pray today as we look at the true Jesus, Lord, as we magnify your name, the psalmist said, let us magnify the name of the Lord together. We are going to magnify your name. And as we magnify your name, God, be blessed be ministered to, Lord. Again, we just pray that you would fill us with your spirit and your joy, and we look forward to what you're going to show us, that we might understand you better today, that we might know you better, and that is our desire to the deepest inner core of our being, Lord, to know you. And so fill us, and now teach us who you are, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, uh, today it may sound kind of like a funny topic to say, uh, looking at the true Jesus, but whether you realize it or not, and probably most of you do, I have found, and I found it very quickly after I gave my life to the Lord, there are a lot of Jesuses out there. Has anybody found that to be true? 
Now, that may sound funny to you, but again, remember, everybody has a Jesus. I think one of the shocking things to me is when I begin to share the Lord, I begin to realize you've got a whole different viewpoint of the Jesus of the Bible. You know, it's interesting in John, it says, Jesus said uh, to those who believe in him, as the scriptures has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And I found out that a lot of people believed in a Jesus, but they oftentimes had the wrong Jesus. For example, the Mormons, they have a Jesus. He's the brother of Satan. Jehovah's Witness, they have a Jesus. He's Michael the Archangel. Uh, the New Age, they have a Jesus. They say he's just one of, of many gods, and we can all become a god just like him. Islam says Jesus is not God at all. He's simply a good prophet. Um, and, and as I said, when you go to the average person on the street and ask them who Jesus is, they'll oftentimes begin to tell you what they would be like, if, or what Jesus, what, what basically comparing Jesus to the way they would do things. They create a Jesus in their own mind. And so we have to realize there's only one Jesus. And so we have to know the true Jesus. And it's in the scriptures that the true Jesus is revealed. You know, if you're um, old enough to remember, there was a game show on back when I was a kid, and I can't even remember the name of the game show. I just remember the premise. What they would do is they would have these three different people up there who were claiming to be the same person. And they would have a panel of people that were competing for some prize you would get. And what you would do is you would all get to ask so many questions of each individual person. And you were trying to find who the real one was. Who is the real person? And they were all, two of them were pretending to be the real person. Only one of them was the real person. And so you'd wait through the whole game trying to guess, looking at their facial expressions, how they're doing. I mean, these people were good at faking. They got people that really could, could trick you in a great way. And they'd get to the very end of the show and they'd say, all right, will the real so-and-so so please stand up. And there'd be this kind of nervous moment where they'd all kind of do this and look around, everybody'd smile. And then one would stand up. Oh man, I can't believe it. You're the one, you know, what a good liar you other guys were, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> That's going on with Jesus today, even in the church. There's a wind of doctrine. And let me say winds of doctrine blowing through the church now that are confusing the scriptures, are confusing who Jesus is, are confusing even the roles of the Christian to the law, which we'll look at next week. But again, the Bible warns us not to be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This is not new. This was in the early church as well. They were called Gnostics, and they came in thinking they had greater knowledge than everyone else. They had pride issues. They wanted to be smarter than everyone else. They started redefining who Jesus was, redefining what was Scripture and what was not Scripture. So the early church fathers had to get together and say, all right, let's get into the Word of God. Let's get into doctrine. Let's get into theology. What does the Bible say? What does God say about himself? What does Jesus say about himself? And they nailed these things. Things down, and God has used that to hold the church steady through these thousands of years of different winds of doctrine. Well, we're in another one right now, and I don't know how close we are to the end. I personally believe we're very close to the return of the Lord, but the Bible gives us a warning. It says that in the last days, that winds of doctrine will blow through the church, that even if the elect could be deceived, they would. It's going to be, the Bible says there'll be a falling away in the last days. And there's going to be doctrines of demons coming in, the Bible says. So we as believers have to be on our toes and say, wait a minute, let me be watching for anything new and some sudden change that doesn't line up with what I find in the scriptures. And that should be our warning. But again, remember, for those who don't know the word of God well or are not staying focused on the Lord, it's going to be very easy to veer them away. And the Bible says that will happen. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, when I return to the earth, will I find faith? on the earth? And what kind of question is that? That's kind of scary. But I know this, if you know the Lord and if you love the Lord, you're going to be okay. Uh, don't panic because you think you're going to be the one that fell away. And now I know today Mark's talking about me. I'm going to be that one. No, you're not. If you love the Lord 
and you stay in his word and stay in prayer, the Lord will hold you. The Bible says that he has you in his hand. No one can take you out. He's the one holding you. Rest in the holding power of Jesus Christ. So when I share this, some will fall away. It's not to put fear in your heart. It is to put a warning from God out there saying, don't let us be that one that kind of veers away and gets on the edge of our Christianity and decides we're going to dabble in the world again and then start playing with some of these doctrines that are blowing through the church because we could be the one that's deceived if we do that. And so again... We have to make sure that we know who the true Jesus is. Now, last week we identified the true scriptures. Jesus said this, remember, he said, concerning me, now remember, you've got to know, how do we find him? How do we find the true Jesus? If everybody's got one, how do we know where Jesus will be found that we can rely on and be sure? He told us last week, of course, he told us a long time ago, but we saw last week where he told us in Luke 24, 44, he said, concerning me, you're going to see it in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. Sometimes they would call it the writings. The reality is that's what they called, what we call today, the Old Testament. That's what they called from Genesis to Malachi. And understand this, I had a couple of questions on this that I want to clarify this week. They were groupings. For example, someone said, well, what about the history books? Here's how it was grouped. The law represented the first five books of the Bible or the Torah or the Pentateuch, we call it. The prophets and, and, and the writings or the prophets rather encompassed not just the prophets, but the historical books as well in their groupings. And then the, the Psalms and or sometimes they called it the writings that included the five poetic books. The bottom line is each and every book of what we call today, the old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was included in that statement. And they all knew it. They didn't have a Bible like we have today. They had scrolls and the scroll stayed there in the uh, uh, temple and the synagogues, but they knew that was the all encompassing thing. So what Jesus said in modern day language, if you want to know about me, you're going to find it in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Well, what is that about the New Testament? We covered that as well. Jesus said this to his disciples. He validated that as well. He said, I'll bring to your remembrance everything concerning me that you need to know. I'll bring it to your remembrance. It'll be a supernatural thing that I will do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know he did that in his disciples. We know that he did that in a vision where he came to Paul and added him in as a disciple. And I believe the 12th apostle, if you will, to take the place of the fall of Judas. But the reality is he said, these things I'll bring supernaturally to you. And they wrote them down. So now we know from Genesis to Revelation, we can now verify Jesus said, these are the things concerning me. We covered that last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the tape so you can catch up with tape. Listen to me, get the tape. Okay, get the digital data in whatever format you get it. I really am not that far behind. It's just years and years of just the same brain thing or whatever anyway. But the reality is go back, hear the teaching so that you know what it is and you can, and you can follow. But again, as we get started today, we're now shifting gears into the true Jesus. That established the true scriptures so we can have confidence in where we stand. Now we come to the true Jesus. And the first thing we have to do to understand the true Jesus is we have to understand the true God, who God is, um, if there's more than one God, and what he calls himself. And then we're going to be able to tie this into Jesus, and you'll see it as we go along, but it'll all come together in a full package by the time we're done, although you're going to be seeing this develop and, and, and catch on as we go through. So the first thing I want to do is we look at who God says he is, 
and uh, who he is. Again, we're going to be looking at now all these. I'll have these verses for you um, on the screen. Okay, in a minute we'll get to Revelation, and then we'll go back to John. There'll be a couple other places we're going to turn. But there's in a topical teaching like this, there's so many scriptures it would be overwhelming trying to get everybody quick enough to them. You would, you, I'm afraid you'd lose a lot of what I want you to hear. So it's going to be on the screens. You can go back later and listen to the digital recording. Uh, you can also, um, I'm going to be making these notes available later, so you can get these notes, and that way you can have them for your own records. I encourage you to take notes in your Bible, because these are going to come in very handy, not only for your foundation, but for also uh, people you're witnessing to, such as Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. These scriptures come in great play. But we're going to be looking first at some, some that we're going to put on the screen out of Isaiah. And let me give you a setting before we get there. It is Yahweh... Okay, or Jehovah, same thing, Yahweh, Jehovah. He's describing who he is and what his relation is, who he's going to be to the children of Israel. That is the context that you need to understand going into this. So who is Yahweh slash Jehovah? Isaiah 43, 10 through 11 says this. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So a lot to unpack here, even in the first verse. Notice, he says, I am he. All right, we'll get to more of his description of himself using that language here in just a moment. Secondly, he says, no God was formed before or after him, meaning he's eternal. He's always existed. There was no God, there was no creation of God. He just is. Now we have trouble understanding that because of our finite minds, but we'll understand it once we're in the kingdom and step outside of time into eternity, if you will. But he says, there's never been one formed before me, never been one formed after me, which means this, there cannot be any other God that was formed or created or began at any moment. There's been no beginning to any God ever is what he's saying. I just am. I've always been. Lastly, he says, he alone is the savior and there is no other. Now, again, all these things begin to stack up and become pretty, pretty uh, powerful when you see the whole picture. He's the savior as well. That should already be ringing bells in your mind as to who our savior is. Isaiah 43, 13 says this, indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reverse it? Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Notice Yahweh here says he's the Redeemer. Yahweh then says he's the first and the last, which by the way, when you translate that into the Greek, is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the Greek alphabet, if you will. The beginning and the end is the idea. And then he says again, there is no God besides me. And you're going to see that theme in all these verses. No God but me. No God but me. No God but me. It's like, okay, God, you're making a point. We're getting it. So let's receive that. Isaiah 44, 8, he says, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. I love it. Again, Yahweh or Jehovah declares here himself to be, again, the only God, and gives himself a new name. He calls himself the rock. Now, again, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that Jesus is what? He is our rock. Now, again, begin to watch these things unfold here as this, as this continues on. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6 says this, I am the Lord, there is no other, there's no God beside me. Again, that same theme that keeps being driven home. I will gird you, though you've not known me, 
that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Again, I'm emphasizing this because the Holy Spirit emphasizes this in all. He's making a point. Should anyone ever doubt, is there another God? You can never put an S after God. There's only one. I'll just confuse you. All right. There's only one God. So realize that there's just one God. No, I'm not going to do that to you. There's one God and he's making it clear over and over. There's only one. Now look at Isaiah 45, 12. He says this, this Yahweh Jehovah, he says, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. So he says, Yahweh, Jehovah, I'm the creator of all things. I, I'm the one that did it. Now look what it says in Colossians chapter one, verse 15 and 16 concerning Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Paul just said, Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Paul just said, Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Now, we're going to see this continue on. It's, it's all through the scripture. We're going to go more. And, and I'm going to now mention this. We'll get to the Trinity in a moment. This is where the mystery of the Trinity comes in, which we can't fully explain. Is God separate than the Father in some way? Yes. Is the Father separate from the Holy Spirit, etc.? Yes. You know, this is all true. This doesn't change the doctrine of the Trinity, but what it shows us is there's a lot more going on than we understand, and there's a whole new definition to who Jesus Christ is that maybe even some of us in this room fully understood. Isaiah 45, verse 21 through 23 says this, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Wow. Once again, no other God. Secondly, Yahweh or Jehovah declares he is the Savior. Yahweh, Jehovah declares here to look to him to be saved. And Yahweh and Jehovah says here that to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Guys, that is exactly who the Bible says is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, if you're already starting to kind of feel the, the, the wheels knocking on each other in the brain, a little bit of smoke coming out one ear, that's the mystery of the Trinity. Can I explain how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and yet he's still the Father? That he's still Yahweh? No, I can't. But I believe his word and the idea that God tells us this, God is not trying to confuse us in any way. God is simply saying Satan's desire is to bring God down. Satan's desire is always to bring down Jesus. And anytime you see a group or a person trying to bring Jesus down, that is of the enemy. And so what God is doing is, is saying, look, you can't fully understand the Trinity. I get that. But, but here's the bottom line. My name is magnified, and he is just like the Father, equal in all ways, and his name cannot be brought down. It's interesting. Again, we'll get more to um, uh, the, the Trinity in just a moment, but he's driving home the point here. There are not multiple gods. There's one God. There's no God who's lesser than the Father. Jesus is not lesser in any form and fashion. 
uh, and we know we find out about Je- uh, Jehovah or Yahweh that He is I am. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is our rock. He is our Savior. And the one at the end of time whom every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. That's who Yahweh and Jehovah is. Now I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1 after God defined himself there in Isaiah. And listen what Jesus says about himself. Again, John receiving the revelation from the Lord. Here, Look at verse 7. First it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, that is those who crucified him, will see him as well. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And notice what he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am who you say I am. Now again, look again at verse uh, 17. Well, let me finish reading verses nine. Let me go through, uh, we're gonna go through 11. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now look at verse 17. And he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, am alive forevermore. Amen. When did Yahweh or Jehovah die? When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. Now, God didn't really die. God continued to exist. But in the form of man, he died and resurrected, again, as a part of the Trinity. Again, that's a whole other doctrinal or theological study we can do at another time. But again, this is a great answer for those that come to your door and knock, whether they be Mormon, Jehovah's Witness. If you show them those verses out of Isaiah and say, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? They're going to say, yeah, the first and the last is Jehovah. The first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, all this. They're going to say that. Then you come to this and read this. I'm the first and the last. Behold, I was dead and I'm now alive. When did Jehovah die? And they won't have an answer for you. Now, I've had that happen. They have no more answers for me at that point. I would love to say they all believe and get saved and give their life to the Lord. They don't. I think it kind of rocks their world for a moment. But here's the thing. They've got to go home and sleep on that. And they've got to run that in the wheels of their mind and say, how can Jehovah have ever died? And finally, if they allow God to work, they'll come to the realization that Jesus Christ was indeed Yahweh or Jehovah in human form. And again, that'll be explained more when we get to the Trinity aspect of what we're looking at today. So that lays the foundation of who God says he is. Now let's look at, again, John chapter 1. Verse 1, because now we're going to begin, although we've let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, the description of who Jesus Christ is. Notice in verse 1, chapter 1 of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now notice first it says, in the beginning was the word. It's important to note that the word beginning here must not be understood to, to have the same meaning that we use it with today. And why is that? Because we already saw in Isaiah and other places that God says he had no beginning. 
The word there is in perpetuity. That is, I've always existed. I just am. I don't have a beginning. I don't have an end. So God is using language that man can understand. And he simply, so our mind can grasp there was a beginning of creation. He uses the word beginning here, but it's not a starting point. It's something that has always been, as we noted. And the clear meaning, again, goes from what we saw in Isaiah, as well as other places we're going to see in Scripture today. But the word rather in the language simply means always existed with no beginning and no end. That is, the word was and is eternal. So he's saying God and the word have always existed. Okay, no beginning, no end. Notice, secondly, it says the word was with God. And again, the language reveals more than simply that the word was with God, but that the word actually had some type of intimate relationship with God. Now think about that. How could the word have an intimate relationship with the God? With God? What is this word? What's he saying? Well, to get the understanding, we have to look at verse 14. We'll have to stop Pastor Mark right there as the first half of our Signs of the Times special has come to a close because we need to take a break. However, when we return, Pastor Mark will expound on how words became flesh and how it can be so exacting to what or to whom it is referring. We'll get the answer to that and why all of this is so important to understand doctrinally and theologically as we continue identifying the true Jesus. Our special edition of Signs of the Times continues right after this. with a question for you today. Hey, would you agree that there's both an attraction between men and women as well as a tension between men and women because of the differences that we have? That's Skip Heitzig with a hot spot about an age-old battle. Sin, as we discovered last week, entered into the human experience. Still, our home can become, even if it's just a slight reflection, a reflection of the Garden of Eden before the fall. Get more biblical truth like this at connectwithskip.com. It's Crazy Money Day. Hi, I'm Chuck Bentley with my money life from Crown. Katie and Michael Kreb rented for seven years and desired a place to call their own. When COVID hit, they looked to the land they inherited from Michael's grandparents. A storage shed built in the 80s would make a perfect tiny house. Living there, they could save money, renovate the main house on the property, then Airbnb the little house. Nine months and $16,000 later, they moved in. With the help of friends and family and a local contractor, they started renovating and did about 90% of the work. They don't have a dishwasher, but enjoy a full-size microwave, stove, and refrigerator. A farmhouse sink doubles as a baby bath, and a hinged table hangs on the wall when not in use. The couple vaulted the ceiling and repurposed a beautiful beam of wood from an old barn on the property. Shiplap walls, plumbing, and proper electricity make it cute and comfortable. Their two girls sleep on a sofa that converts to a bed. The addition of an eight-foot gated porch adds extra living space for them to play. People initially questioned their plan to downsize. Michael says, don't worry about what other people think. Well, I agree. Ask the Lord to direct you. A tiny house may be a step in your stewardship journey. You'll need land, tools, and some help. But with trusted friends and family, you too can own a home debt-free. It's far crazier to me to live in a big home that you can't afford than to live in a tiny home that you can. Does a tiny house sound appealing due to credit card debt? Christian credit counselors can create a debt management plan that will work for you. For more information, call the Crown Helpline 
800-722-1976 or visit online at crown.org slash ccc. And now, Fastened Like Nails with Dr. Mark Hamby. Um, Our culture right now, it's just so sad to see what's going on. The people that are thinking they have this right to things, they're hurting themselves so much. I was at the airport and watched this woman who was one of the airport workers. She was walking down. She, without any fear whatsoever, there's this potato chip stand in front of Starbucks And she reaches over, looks at the people, takes the bag of potato chips, and walks off with it, opens the bag, and starts eating them as if she was entitled to it. What in the world? People are living this entitlement mentality right now. And as a result, they're thinking something's owed to them. And because of that, they are living a life of what a fool really is. Their actions are scornful. Their actions are mocking authority. It's happening with people that mock the police these days or mocking anyone who's an authority that God Mm -hmm. has placed there. Mm -hmm. You know, God says, you know, despise not, you know, authorities that God's placed in your life. Proverbs chapter 3, it ends with, surely he scorns the scorners, but he gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be to the promotion of fools. It's teaching that God will surround your life with grace and glory if you're willing to be humble that will lead to wisdom. Otherwise, if you do not receive the correction of the Lord and you become weary of his chastisement in your life, that's going to lead to a life of foolishness. Yeah. (laughs) You'll either be scornful or foolish, or you'll have a life of grace and glory with humility and wisdom. What greater Mm -hmm. life could you ask for? You've been listening to an excerpt of Fastened Like Nails, a presentation of Lamplighter Ministries. To hear the full podcast, visit FastenedLikeNails.net. W-I-A-M. The thing I'm really thankful for was the focus on Jesus Christ and the gospel that helps me just refocus and recalibrate throughout any point of my day. 101.1 FM, The Way. W-I-A-M-L-P. 101.1 FM, Knoxville. Raising Godly Boys with Mark Hancock. Do you know what the letters WWJD stand for? You'll find the acronym on everything from bracelets to t-shirts to keychains. The letters stand for What Would Jesus Do? The phrase reminds Christians to put Jesus first in all that we do. As parents, we need this reminder, but so do our kids. And the best way for them to learn this is to see it demonstrated in action. So the next time you're faced with financial stress, work problems, or health crisis, take a moment to sit next to your son and go to the Lord in prayer. When your son sees and hears you ask the Lord for help, he'll understand that WWJD is more than a bumper sticker. It's a way of life. For more encouragement and parenting advice, visit Trail Life USA or RaisingGodlyBoys.com. Find free resources to help you at RaisingGodlyBoys.com. It's time for another edition of Brad Huddleston's TechWise. In these segments, we focus on the hazards of technology abuse and most importantly, how to solve them. And now, here's Brad. I've been asked what I think the future of social media will be and what Christians should know about it. In an interview at South by Southwest, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg said the metaverse will bring the next iteration of the Internet. Zuckerberg is so convinced of what he's saying that he changed the name of his company, Facebook, to Meta. As of October 2022, 
Meta had spent $36 billion on developing their version of the Metaverse. That's $36 billion. The Metaverse will utilize virtual and augmented reality headsets, allowing us to interact in an immersive way. Forbes magazine said, Social media platforms in the era of the Metaverse may be more geared towards providing immersive, interactive experiences that stimulate as many of our senses as possible rather than just connecting us to our friends over 2D web pages. The biblical concept of human interaction is called koinonia, a Greek word that means deep Christian fellowship, in the same room with no games, no apps, and no headsets. If you'd like to re-listen to these segments, just search for Brad Huddleston on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The latest attack on believers in Nigeria this week left 42 dead and dozens of homes razed to the ground. World Mission's Greg Kelly says, Christian villages are being wiped off the map, particularly in the northern part of Nigeria. Terrorists have killed more than 50,000 Nigerian Christians since 2009. More than a 1,000 believers were killed between January and April of this year. Leaders that we work with in Nigeria are worn out. They are fed up. They were really hopeful with this last election that there would finally be someone who would come in and create some accountability. And that didn't happen. The president over the last 10 years has been absolutely ignoring the situations that's been going on. And as a result, the people don't feel safe at all. Ask God to strengthen and sustain his people in Nigeria. And for many pastors in a South Asian country, the pulpit isn't enough to make ends meet. One pastor and his family were constantly scraping just to get by. Tim Landis with Farms International says... They were living hand to mouth. Basically, they were growing and then just feeding themselves with what they were growing. Then everything changed when the pastor connected with Farms' small entrepreneurial loans program. He was able to start this rice mill in his village and be able to support himself, his family, and the local village and the church. So it extends out to all of that. And the end goal is to help them with their physical needs so that then they can continue to preach the gospel in their local churches. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. This month, Slava Gospel Association is making available the free book, Much Prayer, Much Power by Peter Dynica, SGA's founder. It's a resource aimed at making your prayer life more vibrant. Get your free copy when you click on the banner ad at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Signs of the Times now continues. Here again is your host. Welcome back to our special edition of Signs of the Times. I'm your host, Greg Hilt, and thanks for staying with us as Pastor Mark is helping all of us identify the true Jesus. You know, it's amazing that people have created their own version of the Christ, but only one paid the price for our sins. Only one created all that is seen and unseen. And only one is the way, the truth, and the life. We had to stop Pastor Mark right when he was going to explain that the Word of God, the very Bible we hold in our hands, is Jesus. He's ready now, and so are we. So here's Pastor Mark again to finish identifying the true Jesus 
on this special edition of Signs of the Times. Notice what it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is, the Word is and was Jesus Christ. He became a man, and again, he manifested himself by the word. Now, this is interesting because there are those that will argue and say, well, it says here that the word was with God and the word was God, uh, but they try to separate the word being separate from God. There's a rule called the Granville Sharps rule in English that stops it from meaning anything but exactly what it's saying. And that is, let me read the Granville Sharps rule. Uh, I'll, I'll explain what it means after I read it because it sounds a little confusing. But here's the Granville Sharps rule that applies to verse 1 of John. It says this, when you have two nouns which are not proper names, again, we have God and the Word, but they're not proper names, which are describing a person, and the two nouns are connected by the word and, and the first noun has the article the, while the second does not, both nouns must refer to the same person. So what the Granville Sharps rule is saying is, God and the Word are exactly the same in this verse. And what's interesting about the Granville Sharp rule is that it also doesn't allow the word A to be inserted in there. Again, if you have a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door and they say, in the beginning it was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God, they're going to read it. And you're going to, what? I never saw that in my Bible because it's not there. It's not in the ancient manuscripts. And the Granville Sharps rule doesn't allow it to be there. It breaks the rules of the grammar. So it's just a, a dishonest insertion of a word to bring confusion to the situation. And again, this is so important to understand doctrinally and, theo and theologically because, again, there are those who will try to teach you, again, uh, in the cults, as well as I see coming into the church across America today, uh, that Jesus was maybe a God, but he was somehow a lesser God. He wasn't God, fully God, as God Almighty. And that's what these verses and these passages clearly refute. And that's what this verse clearly refutes, what you understand, the fact that it's locked in grammatically and in the Greek uh, uh, language as well. And so uh, we're going to see before we're done today that not only is Jesus not lesser than the Father, he's equal in all ways to the Father, which again brings in the mystery of the Trinity that we'll get to in just a moment. But something else I want to note now, another scripture about who God describes himself, this will come into play in something Jesus is going to say uh, in John. But in Exodus 3, verses 13 through 14, notice what it says. This is Moses now, Yahweh appearing to Moses in the burning bush, slash Jehovah, same one, appearing to Moses to give him the command to go and set the children of Israel free down in Egypt. It says, then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And from that point on, the children of Israel refer to God as the I am, the great I am. And I love the definition of God when he gives himself that designation because an I am, it just is. There's no beginning. There's no end. And again, as we're going to see when we're, by the time we're done today, he also is everything you need. He just is. And whatever your need is today, he is ready right here to meet that need. And all you have to do is cry out to him to have him meet that need. And we'll see more of the designations and descriptions of his name as we finish today. So you know how you can cry out to the Lord, to this great I am. Now you know why in John chapter 8, verse 52 through 59, they wanted to kill Jesus. Because listen what Jesus said. Remember, in their culture, they knew that God was I am. No man ever took that name to himself. 
And if a man took that name to himself, claiming he was God, Yahweh, Jehovah, they would kill them with stones. They were put to death immediately. It was, it was blasphemy. Notice what it says, John 8, verse 52. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? I love that question. I love it. Jesus answered and said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. You know, the Lord didn't uh, pull any punches, did he? Again, not the best way to grow a church. Um, you know, I, I welcome to our church, but if I'm like you, I'll be a liar like you guys. You know, come on in and have a seat. Again, I'm not saying he would say that to us. I'm saying this is pretty, he cut straight to the point. I'll be a liar like you if I don't speak the truth. I must speak the truth. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, my day. And saw it. And he was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus just told them, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. Now you know why they're going to react the way they do. That was blasphemy. Look at verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and going through the midst of them, so passed by. Again, major doctrine. Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a spiritual leader. Jesus declared that he was Yahweh in some form, Jehovah in some form. Again, equal with the Father in all ways as a part of this trinity, no less than God himself. Philippians 2 verse 5 through 6 says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, note that the form of God did not consider it robbery or saying that he was saying something wrong, we would say, to be equal with God. Total equality. Didn't consider it wrong to say that. Again, notice this. Jesus said to Philip in John 14, verses 7 through 9, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and you've seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be sufficient. You know what I mean? We've seen him. Just let us see him and that, that'll do it. Again, no small request. That always cracks me up every time I read that. It's like, close your eyes and get ready. Ah! You know, anyway. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? You've not known me, the Father in human form. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Again, one portion, a couple of things that cause people to stumble when you're looking at these passages and, and some of the other things it says. In a verse we saw earlier, notice it said that he was the firstborn of all creation. Another place it says he was the only begotten of the Father. And so people think, well, how can he be uh, not lesser than the Father? How could he not have a beginning? How could he be the firstborn and be begotten and somehow not be different? First of all, we have to understand a couple of things about those words. Number one, firstborn did not always mean in that culture, literally the firstborn. They had two meanings for firstborn in the Jewish culture. 
The first meaning was the firstborn. You're the first one that was born. That's pretty straightforward and pretty easy, right? But the second meaning of firstborn meant the one who had authority over all the family. It was a symbolic authority position and authority designation. And so you might not have even been the firstborn, but if you had the authority over the family, you would be called the firstborn. Remember when Esau and Jacob were born, who was the firstborn? Esau. But who did God call the firstborn? Jacob. Why? Because he said, I'm giving Jacob the authority over the family. He will carry on my family name. So when it says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean he had a beginning. It means in the second meaning, because of what the Bible has already described as who he is eternal, what it means is he has all authority over the household of the father. He has all authority as God in that rulership. That's all it means by the firstborn. Very uh, uh, simple cultural meaning. In addition to that, uh, the next thing that people struggle with, again, is the word here where it says that he is the begotten, if you will. Uh, the word begotten here is a very interesting word. Uh, it simply means one of a kind. And that is when Jesus became the, the begotten, it doesn't say that he means that he had a beginning. It means he's the only one that ever was God and became man. He's the only one that was ever man who is God, and he's the only one that ever will be. And so he is unique in that. The word is monogenes there in the Greek for begotten. And it means this unique designation as one of a kind. So firstborn just means the authority. Begotten just means one of a kind. That's all it means. And again, it's interesting here because in, uh, when it speaks of Colossians in, chap in chapter one of Colossians, it says that Jesus himself was the actual creator over all things. Again, that shows that he was, again, in essence, the firstborn over all things and the one who has authority over all things. That's why that word is used there is that one of a kind designation. So the next major doctrinal issue we have to address um, is how can the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all be one? And that is where we come into the mystery of the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to tell you how Jesus can be seated at the right hand of the Father and still be the Father. I don't know how that works. But I know that somehow that's what the Bible teaches. They are one and the same, and yet they are separate. I can give you some things from the language that I think will help you, and some ideas, especially uh, when it comes to the Trinity. Now, again, when I mention this, again, we've all heard some of the Trinitarian examples that people give, like an egg. You have the outside of the egg. You have the white. You have the yolk. I had one of the guys share with me last night. He said, it's like a pocket knife with three different blades in it. Uh, this kind of thing, you know, so you know, they're all one and the same. And so a good Southern, uh, uh, you know, use there of that and understanding. But God will give us our, our ways of understanding. Listen, I think one of the ways that God's been ministering to me in this is, yes, the Father has always been one, but when he manifested himself to mankind, he manifested himself as a human. And he was begotten. That means he manifested himself as a man to us. He was still father in one, but a different manifestation. With the Holy Spirit, he does the same. And the Hebrew language will help us with this understanding. And I think I'll give you a visual that I'm thankful that God gave us that gives a little bit more understanding. And that is in the Hebrew language, there are two words for the word one. The first word is echad, E-C-H-A-D. And echad means absolute one. Okay. Right here. There's one microphone. That's it. Absolute one. This microphone is echad. All right. There's another word for one that's used in the Hebrew language, and it's the word yachid, Y-A-C-H-I-D. And yachid means compound unity. Let me give you an example of yachid. I have up one hand, but on this one hand, I've got five parts. This hand is yachid. This mic is echad. Why is that important? 
Because Jesus, because God said, basically Jesus, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now let me read that again and what it says in the language. Hear, O God, the Lord our God is Yaqid. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, but he's compound unity. It's the teaching and the speaking of the Trinity, and yet he's one. Now, that may not help you much, but that helps me a lot. I don't say that I fully understand it, but it makes more sense to me. Now, probably one of the clearest places to see the Trinity in action, besides Genesis 1-1 and, and this particular verse right here, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is Yahid, is when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist. Because when Jesus went in the water, you have the Son in the water, then it says, the Father spoke to him from heaven. And then it says, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. You have all three right there together, separate yet one, and all three being magnified at the same time. And again, what a beautiful picture of the Trinity in visual for us to see as well in our limited understanding and ability to put all of this together. Now, the last place I want to turn today is uh, the most famous uh, Christmas verse probably in all the Bible, and that is back in Isaiah chapter 9. So flip back in your Bible to the largest book of the Old Testament, Isaiah, about somewhere toward the middle. If you flip there, you're going to be close. Go to chapter 9. I know you know the verse very well, but we're going to get the further designations of who Jesus is as described by Isaiah the prophet uh, that wraps all this together up in a nice little bow as we finish today. Notice there in chapter uh, 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. We know that was Jesus Christ. He was born as a human. God gave him to us, himself, if you will, in human form, as he was begotten in human form. And there he is. And it's interesting, between those first two lines and the rest of the verse, there's thousands of years. Now, what do I mean by that? Because the next line says, And the government will be upon his shoulder. The government has never been upon the shoulder of the Lord. Not yet. The Bible says, so come back to rule the earth for a thousand years, and during the thousand-year reign, the government will be upon his shoulder. That is, he will be ruling, and he will be reigning. That's yet to come. But now we get into what his name will be called. Notice this, and his name will be called. Now, before we read this, you have to understand what your name meant in that culture. It wasn't just your last name at the end of your name, okay? It meant who you were in character, it meant who you were in essence. It meant who you were at your very core. If, you, if someone knew, again, they say, you know, a child is known by their family name, the Bible says, or whatever. The bottom line is, is that it's who you are. So when you describe someone's name, when you pray in Jesus' name, you're not just giving it a special word that makes it suddenly, you know, give that extra boost to get to heaven, right? No, you're saying, I'm praying in the way that Jesus would pray. And if we're not praying the way Jesus would pray, we probably ought to rethink our prayers because we're saying this is in the character of Jesus. This is who Jesus is to his very core in essence. This describes him. You know, when, when, when Moses said to the Lord, he said, Lord, let me see your, let me see your glory. He said, I'm going to put you on a rock. I'm going to put my hand on you. I'm going to pass by because you can't see my face, not till you're in your new body. You can only see my afterglow. I'm going to pass by and let you see my afterglow. And he says, as I pass by, I will declare my name. And that is, he began to declare wonderful account. All these things, he began to say who he was. It was his character, who he is. Now we get into who Jesus will be called, his very essence, his very name. And notice what it says here first. His name shall be called Wonderful. It means wonder, 
a wonder. He, he's a wonder. Isn't the Lord a wonder? His name is wonderful. He was asked by someone that he appeared to, and, you know, again, before he came to the earth as a man, he would come in several episodes in the Bible. Theologians called it a theophany or a Christophany. And someone said, what is your name? And he said, why do you ask my name, seeing it's wonderful? And so here he describes himself. His name is wonderful. Notice next, his next name is counselor. I love this definition. It means to give counsel, to deliberate, purpose, or to determine. And what that means is if you have something you need deliberated, if you have something that has, you need to find out the purpose, if you have something that needs to be determined, he's the one to run to. He's your counselor. And yes, it's good to have your pastor and people around you that know the word of God. But this morning, if you need counsel, run to the Lord. Say, God, I need counsel. He says, I'll do that. I'm your counselor and I'm wonderful. I'll give you wonderful counsel. He's faithful to do that. Notice next it says, mighty God. Anyone who says that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God very clearly doesn't know the Bible. It's the word El Gibor. It means God Almighty. Not just God, God Almighty. And so he describes himself there. It speaks of might and power. And now we come to the one that's probably the most challenging and probably you've read over a million times on the Christmas cards and never really thought it through. He shall be called Everlasting Father. You can't get more equal to the Father than being called the Everlasting Father. Now, is there a separation? I'm going to say it again. Yes. I'm not refuting the Trinity. I don't understand how Jesus can be at the right hand of himself. I don't understand the oneness of it. This is a mystery we'll find out one day when we arrive. But the Bible makes it very clear there's something going on here that's beyond our understanding. I don't think it's to confuse us. I know it's not. It's not to argue. It, the point is, here's what God wants you to know. My son Jesus is exactly as exalted as, exalted as, as highly as I am. We are one. He is not lesser. He is God Almighty. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. His name will even be called Everlasting Father, and yet we're somehow separate in the Trinity. Again, we'll figure it out in heaven, but I think the reason God drove this point so home, so much, so clear, is because he knew that throughout time, Satan would always be trying to bring Jesus down, bring Jesus down like the cults do. He's just this. He's just that. He's not that. No, he's, he's all that and more. And that's another name he'll be called as. Everlasting Father. Notice this also, Prince of Peace. I love this lastly, Prince of Peace. It means Prince of Shalom. It means the Prince of completeness, soundness, peace, or a state of wholeness and unity with a restored relationship. Who here this morning needs uh, completeness and soundness to be restored to your life? He's here for you. He's here to restore completeness and wholeness and soundness. He's here to give you peace. He's here to bring unity to a restored relationship with God and those around you. That's who he is. That's what his name will be called. And some of you need that. Now, the point is here, there's probably some of us in here who need different ones of these and all of these at some point we will need him to be. And that's why God named himself with so many names in the Bible to let us know, I am everything you need and I will be everything you need. It's interesting. I am who I am is literally translated. I will be who I will, will be. Or I will be who I will be. That is, whatever you need me to be, I am, but I will be whatever you need me to be. What do you need Jesus to be for you this morning? Look, I know this was a teaching on doctrine. Doctrine is typically not as exciting as other portions of scripture and more classroom type stuff, right? And yet at the same time, what the Lord is saying to us this morning through all this doctrine is I want you to know that I have the power and authority to do whatever I want in your life. And I am all the things that you need. Let me know. 
Speak to me. Call out to me. I will be what you need. I will meet you at your greatest need. I will give you the peace that you desire. I will give you the counsel that you desire. I will be your father. I will be your savior. I will be your rock. I will be everything to you. And most of all, I am wonderful, so I will do it wonderfully if you'll simply run to me and ask. And I've seen that to be true in my life with the Lord. He is wonderful in all these things. Look, as we finish today, let me just say this. First of all, I believe it's very clear that Jesus is almighty God. Don't ever let anyone tell you anything less. Don't worry about trying to get in fights about Yahweh, the Father, all these things or whatever. Again, we won't fully understand all this till heaven. But as Jesus said to Philip, he says to us this morning, if you see me, you've seen the Father. No less, no greater, there is none greater. Completely equal in all ways, all power, all authority. And again, it's gonna change the way you see Jesus. It's gonna change the way you read the Gospels. It's going to change the way you pray. I say, Lord, who, who do I pray to? The Father of Jesus. Who do I pray to? I am. Whatever you call me, I am. Relax. I hear you because I am. And I am all of those. And he's all that for you this morning. Don't we serve a great God? Let us magnify the name of the Lord together. We fulfilled that psalm this morning. We magnified the name of the Lord. So Father, we thank you, God, for a session of doctrine and theology. Lord, that we might be settled, that we might be strong in our faith, that we might not stumble, that we might be a house built on the rock rather than on shifting sand that collapses. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for manifesting yourself as Jesus Christ, man in human form on the earth. We thank you for manifesting and distributing the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might have the power to walk with you and to serve you and to know you. And God, I thank you that you're the God in whatever name is used in scripture. You are I am. You're the God right here, right now, the wonderful God that can meet any and every need in this place. And as you hear your flock crying, out to you right now, Lord. Lord, meet those needs. Be who they need you to be in where they are right now. And lastly, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, the great I am, and the fact that you died for us on that cross and spilled your blood and resurrected three days later that we might be forgiven of our sins and live forever with you in your kingdom. Lord, I pray this would be the morning they would cry out and confess they are a sinner and they believe you died for their sins. If that's you, do that. Cry out. Let him know. Father, thank you for the work of your spirit this morning and the teaching, the solid teaching of your word that we might stand firmly and not be shaken by every wind of doctrine that blows through the church. Lord, we love you. We thank and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I love how Pastor Mark shared Isaiah 9-6 for us because it's a wonderful encapsulation of who the true Jesus is. He is all things wonderful. He wants to help us through his counsel. He has all power because he's God Almighty, the everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace, who through him we can have completeness, be well cared for, have peace, and a state of wholeness and unity with him. There's obviously more to our Lord, but let's just say he's everything we need. And now we need to wrap this up because we're out of time. 
However, next time, we'll be back on The Prophecy Train, as I'm sure Pastor Mark will have much to share on his trip through Israel, and much more to share as we take a trip through the world's news, as we discuss and learn how the things happening in our world today point to God's prophetic word as signs of the times. Follow.